words. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus turns to them and says, this scripture that was prophesied three quarters of a millennia ago, what it was that Isaiah was talking about, the person and the event and the ministry and the work is me and the work that I've come to do right now. So let's just unpack this a little further, shall we? These first verse and a half that Jesus quotes here tells us so much about Jesus, doesn't it? First of all, Jesus Christ, God's anointed. Did you see that in the first verse? The Lord has anointed me. My friend, this is so central to the Christian faith and the Christian message, isn't it? The uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the one that God sent into this world. Many others have claimed to be ways of the Father. Many others have claimed to be ways to heaven. Many others have claimed that you can find salvation in their name. But Jesus Christ stands uniquely as the one who God anointed. The one whom the Father chose to send. And Jesus never balked from making that clear in his ministry. For example, John chapter 5, verse 36, second part of verse 36 into 37. Jesus says, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. Go a few chapters later, John chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus again speaking, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Two chapters later, John fourteen thirty one, Jesus is speaking, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus was absolutely clear throughout his ministry, I'm here because the Father has sent me here. I'm here at the Father's command. I'm here on the Father's business. I don't speak according to what I think I should speak. I speak according to what the Father has told me to say. Indeed, the very word Christ in the Greek, Christus, the word Messiah in Hebrew, both mean anointed. He says, I am the anointed one, Jesus the Christ. My friend, that's why it's impossible to love God and not Jesus Christ. You cannot separate the two. You cannot say, as, as, as the Jewish religious leaders tried to argue, we love God the Father, we love God, but we reject Jesus Christ. You cannot do that. You cannot say, I obey God, but I don't obey Jesus Christ. I will not worship Jesus Christ. He is the anointed one of God. He comes from God, as God, co-equal with God, with all the authority of God. To do the very work of God in this world. He's God's anointed. But there's more here. Jesus Christ empowered by Holy Spirit. Did you see that? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Of course, there's a sense in which every Christian can echo that. I mean, I mean, there's a sense in which we can say the Holy, God's Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is upon me. But not in the way that he was upon Jesus Christ. That was unique. Listen to Matthew chapter 3, 
verse 16. Jesus comes to be baptised. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, this is what we read. And when Jesus was baptised, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Uniquely, Holy Spirit came upon Jesus Christ for the work that he was here to do. Indeed, right from the very beginning of that ministry, Luke records for us in Luke 4.14, and Jesus returned, this is from the wilderness, the very start of his ministry, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. From day one that he takes up his ministry, it is evident to all that Holy Spirit is upon him and the work that he is doing. He healed the sick, he drove out demons, he read the minds and hearts of those around him, he stopped the storm, he walked on water, he even brought the dead back to life again. Uniquely, Holy Spirit was working in Jesus Christ. But then we've got Jesus Christ, the bringer of good news. Look again at verse 1. To bring good news to the poor. And he was certainly the bringer of good news, wasn't he? The very word gospel means good news. The whole message of Jesus Christ is good news to who? To the poor. But that doesn't mean the below a certain income level. I, I would suggest to you, I would argue most definitely that the, the word poor there is used in the same sense that Jesus uses it in Matthew 5, verse 3, where he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not the financially poor, it's those who are poor in spirit. In other words, it's those who recognize the poverty of their good works, the poverty of their spiritual state who recognize that they're totally going to be totally dependent upon God. They can't do anything to impress him themselves. To them, Jesus Christ is good news. Because to them comes the kingdom of God. To them comes the amazing truth that it's not going to be dependent on your good works. It's not about you, it's about Christ. And his death for sinners. Jesus Christ, bringer of good news. But there's even more. Jesus Christ, the sin bearer. He has sent me to bind up the broken hearted. Suggests we can very easily understand what he means by that because it follows on from the previous thing and of course in the parallel passage in Matthew 5 where Jesus is talking of these things immediately after talking about blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven the very next verse we read this blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted and here Jesus is saying he has sent me to bind up the broken hearted those who mourn well what are they mourning about they're mourning about their sin they're the ones who are comforted by Christ. Those who come to him with an overwhelming awareness of their filth, of their unrighteousness, of, of their impurity, of their need to be cleansed. And he said, for them, I bind up their broken hearts. And Jesus Christ, the deliverer of captives, 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Well, Jesus certainly never promised physical liberty in this lifetime to his people, did he? In fact, he promises the very opposite. They persecuted me, they persecute you. No, this isn't talking about physical liberty. This is spiritual liberty. This is a promise that bound to the the law that couldn't save. They're freed from that binding. Bound to sin that destroys. They're free from that. Bound to that uh, um, repeated cycle of sin. They're broken from that. They are set free in Christ. My friend, do you appreciate these things? When Jesus turns around and says these words, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. If you're in Christ this morning, he has set you free. Praise the Lord. And Jesus Christ, the herald of the gospel age, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. What a privilege it is to live this side of Calvary, isn't it? To know that this glorious gospel has been set free from the ceremonial law. It's been set free from nationalistic boundaries. It has gone out into all the world and it's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. And this is the year of the Lord's favour between Christ setting his gospel free and the Lord's returning glory. Now is the acceptable day to cry out upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Today is the acceptable time. Well, that's the Saviour's coming, my friends. And because he has come, we have a gospel to proclaim. Because he has come, we have a faith that saves. Because he has come, we have assurance of heaven. To see the believer's future, verses 3 to 7, we're not going to go through this in any detail because we looked at it last time in chapter 60. What is going to be ours because of Christ coming and Christ dying for us? But let me just read through it. And as we read through it again, please just note this. It is a picture of a total transformation. Everything that is negative now becomes beautiful then. Everything that is hard now becomes easy then. Everything that is against them now works for them then. Just listen to these verses again. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. They're mourning now. They're going into captivity. They're going to lose Jerusalem. They're going to lose the temple. They're going to lose their homes. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend their flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonour, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. My friend, I don't know how life's fallen for you. 
don't know whether it's fallen in pleasant places, whether the boundaries have fallen in pleasant places or, or whether it's really hard at the moment. But God's promise is this. It won't be like that in glory. When Christ returns, when all is set free, when the redeemed are gathered into his presence, all of those things that now we struggle with, all those things we have to fight with, all those things that compete and hurt will be finally transformed into pure blessing and joy. And how did it end there? They shall have everlasting joy. I don't know whether you're one of those people who are joyful by nature or not. I, I, it's somewhat personality, isn't it? I mean, some people just... Uh, naturally joyful and they're bubbly and they, and they sort of breeze through life and other people seem to sort of struggle and, 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 and struggle a lot with just finding joy in life. Not in the new heavens and new earth. It will be everlasting joy. Can you imagine that? You think of the most joyful day you've ever had on planet earth. Think, think of what you could arrange to make the most joyful day you could ever have. You know, I don't know what you do with that day, whether you sort of farm the children out to somebody else or you'd have the children all around you or what it might be and, you know, what food you would have and everything. But, but you know, if you could put everything together to make this the most joyful day I've ever experienced, every day in glory will be infinitely more joyful than that day. That's the believer's future. How can it be that God's going to give us a future like that? Why is God going to do it? Why, why is this Saviour going to come into the world to do all of these things that we just looked at in order that we can have a future like that? Well, to answer that, we need to look at the Lord's heart. Verses 8 to 9. And once we do that, we come across, once again, this massively important word, don't we? Covenant. It's there in verse 8. Did you see it there? For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Well, at the time that God's speaking here, he's already made a number of covenants with human beings. Uh, We got them right from the Adamic one onwards. But he's speaking here of of the final, the greatest, the, the culmination, the climax of all the covenants that he makes the very one that he's going to make in Jesus Christ that is going to be sealed by the blood of Christ in other words he says all that's going to happen in the future the coming of Jesus Christ the future that the church is going to enjoy is all got to do with my making a covenant with them so we find that At the very Passover meal, before he goes to his death, Jesus says these words as he takes the cup. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, saying, and this is what he says, this cup is poured out for you, meaning my blood is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. This new covenant, this ultimate, greatest, climactic, unpassable covenant is sealed in the very blood of Jesus Christ. But what we've got to grasp is this. It is a covenant of grace. 
What have we just read there in that verse? How does it start? Verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. And we stand as those who are not just. Those who do wrong. And yet God says, but I'm going to make a covenant with you. In other words, the covenant is all of grace. God does not look at you and I and say, I really like you. Do you know? I've got to tell you this. I I, I find you such lovely people that I want to make a covenant with you. God has never said that. He's never looked at any human being and said, wow, you're nice, you're good. He looks at us and says, your righteous deeds are like filthy rags in my sight. I hate what I see when I look at you. But I love you. I love you to the degree that Christ is going to die on a cross to redeem you. That's grace. That's amazing grace. That a God who cannot look on sin, a God who cannot have sinners come near him, does everything necessary in order that we can come near him, although we're sinners. That's the Lord's heart. We have got this awesome God who is so holy, so pure that he lives in an approachable light. A God who Moses said, let me see your glory and let me see your face. And God says, you can't. No man can see me and live. And he hides him in a cleft in a rock and he just, his glory passes before him. And just Moses is just allowed to see the glimpse of the back edge of the glory of God. And he has to cover his face when he goes back down. Because it's so radiant after he's spoken with God. This God who is so holy that Isaiah in just a vision when he sees him says, Woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips. That Ezekiel, when he sees him in vision, falls flat on his face. That Peter, when he's in the boat with Jesus and realizes, starts to realize who Jesus is, says, Depart from me, I'm a sinner. This God who is so set apart, so holy, comes into our world in the person of Jesus Christ. As God's anointed one, empowered by Holy Spirit, to bring good news to us. And that good news being that God has done everything necessary, or will do everything necessary, in Christ. In order that we who are far away can be brought near. And he becomes the sin bearer. And he becomes the deliverer of captives. And he brings in the gospel age. And this good news goes out to every nation upon earth. Because God's heart is to save men and women out of every tribe and nation and people's group on the face of this planet. And that just thrills my heart. There is not going to be a people's group not represented there in heaven. That when we walk in the new heavens and new earth, there will be men and women there out of every tribe and people and language and nation upon earth. We are talking before... We started the service this morning about that so-called hymn that, um, that was on that sheet and did his feet in ancient times walk upon England's green and pleasant land. Absolutely not. Jesus Christ did not come to England. I cannot think of anything more racist and arrogant than to suggest that he did. But God's got a heart for people in England and people in America and people in Papua New Guinea and people in Malawi, 
and people in each and every nation upon earth. And heaven would not be heaven if each one of those is not represented there. Because God has said that they will be. That the redeemed of every nation will be there in the presence of Christ. So see, finally, the Christian's response. What should be our response to this? You know, we can sit here and we can read this and we can say, great, I'm safe, you know, um, I've, got, I've got my badge. I, I, you know, Holy Spirit's in me, that's my seal, I'm, I'm guaranteed a place, I'm okay. Is, is that what it's about? Are we just supposed to read these things and then go out there and start talking about what we're having for dinner and, you know, what the sun's doing today or not doing? I mean, my friends, this should transform us. Look at verses 8 and 9. Sorry, look at verses 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. That's, That's... That's the response we're supposed to have. We're supposed to become praise people. We're supposed to become rejoicing people. I mean, would you say that characterized the way you came into God's house this morning? I came in here as one of the praise people, one of the rejoicing people. Does that characterize how you're going to work tomorrow? Monday morning, you know, oh dear. And you, and you get up, and, and you get ready, and you go to your place of work, and you open the door, and oh, they're all there, and it's, you know. Would you, do you go in like, I'm here to praise God. I'm here to glorify God in whatever I do, whether I eat or drink. Let me do it all for the glory of God. Is, 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 is that your heartbeat? It should be. We stand unique in this world as those that have this future in Christ. Muslims don't have it. Buddhists don't have it. Those whose trust and hope in Mary don't have it. It's the Christian's privilege. Christ has done this for us. So the response is, or should be, verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Do you you appreciate that that's what Christ has done for you? That that in him dying on the cross, and we are justified, justice is satisfied, as far as God is concerned with us because of Christ, that God has done two things. He has reckoned our sin as belonging to Christ. And Christ dies for that. And he reckons Christ's righteousness as belonging to us that we now stand covered in the righteousness of Christ. That when the God the Father looks at me, he doesn't see Dave Hall's sin anymore. As far as the east is from the west, that far as he removed it. That when he looks at me, he cannot identify anything as wrong still belonging to me. He, He has separated it from me in Christ. He has paid for it in Christ. And when he looks at Dave Hall, amazingly, unbelievably to me, He sees me as as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. That is not blasphemy, that is the word of God. I'm not as righteous as Jesus Christ. He sees me as being as righteous as Jesus Christ. 
He reckons me as being as righteous as Jesus Christ. He has made a legal declaration. Dave Hall is covered in the righteousness of Christ. And that stands for eternity. And he's done the same for each and every one who has put their trust and hope in Christ. So he says, it's a no-brainer. What's my response? Given that he's clothed me with the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness, here's my response. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I will exalt in my God. Now that's quite easy to do in church on a Sunday, isn't it? It would help if my voice worked a bit better than it does, you know, if I could actually hit the notes I'm trying to hit instead of somewhere else. But, I mean, it's, it's relatively easy to do it in church. But, but that's only the tip of the iceberg. This is about 24-7 living. This is, this is about how I am at work. This is about how I am in the home. This is about how I'm thinking and meditating when I'm on my own. This, this is about a total life transformation where I exist to magnify and glorify and praise and exalt God. That's an awesome privilege, isn't it? That God says, not only have I saved you, but I've given you the privilege of magnifying me out there in the world. That's the way John Piper illustrates that. He says... Um, you know, there's two ways things get magnified, aren't there? He said, you know, there's the, there's the microscope sort of magnification where something's tiny, little. So, so you, you have a microscope to make it look bigger. He said, well, we don't do that with God. He said, but there's the other way, the telescope way, where the thing is enormous. And the job of the telescope is to help you to see how big it is. And he said, that's, that's the sort of magnifying that we're supposed to do of God. We're just supposed to help the world to see how big he is. In the way we praise him, magnify him, speak of him, live for him, honour him in every part of life. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Isn't that a lovely picture? As God saves men and women in nation here, nation there, today and tomorrow. There's people going to be saved today in this world. Isn't that awesome? It's going to be rejoicing in heaven today because sinners have been saved. And tomorrow and the next day. And as he causes righteousness to rise up in the nations, God gets the glory. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing. We're going to sing really how we should respond to this. We're going to sing, who is there? Is that the right one? No, I've said the wrong words. What love is this? What love is this that took my place? Instead of wrath, you poured your grace on me. What can I do but simply come and worship you? That's the response that God asks. I surrender all to you. Let's worship the King.